Many moons ago, when the world was young and heroes walked the earth, there was born the History Podcast. And in this world, there was the Beeb. There was Lars Brownworth and a bloke called Mike Duncan, and we heard Mike and knew he was good. And so was spawned a new generation, wherein I was inspired by Robin Pearson, who picked up the mantle of the Roman Empire in Byzantium. Robin, I'm glad to say, is still going strong, is still producing magnificent history and entertainment, and here is a message from him. Hello everyone, this is Robin Pearson from the History of Byzantium podcast. It seems like you enjoy your history recounted to you by an erudite, funny Englishman. Well, I am also an Englishman. And if you like a bit of Roman history, then come join me for a thousand-year epic of incredible highs and devastating lows. Check out The History of Byzantium wherever you get your podcasts, or go to thehistoryofbyzantium.com. For now, back to David. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. everyone and welcome to the history of england episode 345 theater the second playwrights last time we heard about the growth of public theater and i left you hanging on the edge of a cliff how we wondered how were the poor old privy council faced with such examples of scurrilicity how would they re-establish proper right and meet control as was their bounden duty well, censorship now was a well-established tradition, of course, in early modern Europe, and it was to censorship that they duly turned. Very often, it has to be said, censorship was not very effective in print because, just organisationally, it was often impossible to track down the type of people that, you know, pinned libels to gentry gates in the middle of the night or put Catholic bills up on the doors of St Paul's or those tinkers in the Low Countries bunch of radicals would get round English laws by printing illegal material over there and then shipping it over. But here, in this theatre situation, well, censorship had a real chance. Because here, there were theatres and companies they could get hold of with addresses, organisations that could be inspected and put out of business if they put on the wrong performance. So, as private theatre grew, through established theatres and travelling companies, the Privy Council was able to extend its control. In 1572, the Master of the Revels, and then the equivalent of a Students' Union Ents Committee for the Royal Court, became responsible for the licensing and censoring of all plays. Every theatre, of course, must have a noble patron and must be licensed, 
with the additional benefit of raising a bit of cash for the government on the, if you can't beat them, tax them principle. But the Privy Council were also a good deal sneakier than that, I'm ashamed to report. In addition to the job of the Master of the Revels to carefully censor anything scurrilous, they tried to subvert the agenda, to skew the market, through the innovation of setting up their very own theatre company in 1581, the Queen's Men. Since the Madge herself, you know, Gloriana and all that, was the patron, it would surely have to be the most prestigious company and reputation. Also, it would, just by the by, have a monopoly for a couple of years at least, while it's got its knees under the table, to perform at court. Or a monopoly of two, if that's a thing, along with the boys' company who also acted at court and mounted plays by John Lyley. John Lyley, incidentally, was another poet and playwright, and like Shakespeare, was a serious kind of chap, noted not for fresh air and fun, but for his courtesy, and also notable for apparently being the source of the famous saying, all's fair in love and war, John Lyley. Anyway, the plays that Lyley wrote for the boys' companies celebrated the virtues of the Queen and the ideals of her court. And that sounds like a much more suitable use of drama, don't you think? The Queen's men were supposed to fulfil that same role, glorifying the monarchy, dramatising elements of Tudor doctrine and mystical monarchy, building a healthy patriotism as is only good and proper. So, there were plays like The Famous Victories of Henry V, for example, which did an obvious job. They did King Lear, which was not the Bard's version. I don't think Tom wasn't a cold at all. He was all snuggled up and toasty. The message of this were the evils which follow from a divided kingdom. There was the troublesome reign of King John, which, interestingly, focused on the evils of papal interference and the joys of national unity, and includes the lines, If England's peers and people join in one, nor Pope, nor France, nor Spain can do them wrong. Art, then, as an instrument of the state, like those big communist statues of beefy women and hench blokes. The idea was that the Queen's men would blow everyone out of the the water, or at very least, weaken them. It would also then have the added benefit of removing a source of rivalry among the nobility at court with all those patrons jockeying for position. My company's best, no, mine's better than yours, that sort of thing. It did, in fact, have an impact, so many of Leicester's best actors left for the Queen's company. Why play for Man U, after all, when he could be playing at Pride Park for the Rams? but the impact turned out to be a bit temporary. So by 1586, Leicester's company were back performing at court, as before. The rising star of the acting world, Edward Allen, was performing now with the Lord Admiral's men at Henslow's new theatre, The Rose, and the City of London complained that suddenly companies calling themselves the Queen's men had sprung up all over the place like mushrooms. The city was stuffed full of so-called Queen's men, little tinkers. Actors, really, shish! No respect for authority. What are they like? But there was an impact from the Queen's men. All those plays about England's history and monarchy rather struck a chord with the audience, and other companies thought they'd do themselves no harm with Queenie either if they started glorifying monarchy too. And so, the national story and identity 
was a central part in the work of playwrights from then on, including, of course, that bloke that did a few. So, also, Thomas Hayward, a playwright and actor mainly during James's reign, was able to write in 1612, writing, as he did at the time, in defence of theatre, that plays had instructed such as cannot read in the discovery of all our English chronicles, and enabled Englishmen to discourse of any notable thing, even from William the Conqueror, nay, from the landing of Brute, until this day. Well, I can't think of a finer contribution that could be made than discoursing history. Brute, by the way, was thought to be the founding king of Britain. To this time, Brutus to us, of course, not the Etu Brute chap who stuck a knife into Julius, but a Trojan, a descendant of Aeneas, who came to Britain and landed at Turtmus, of course, interestingly, and also then at London. When he died, he divided Britain into three kingdoms for each of his sons, Alba, now Scotland, Cambria, Wales, of course, and Logria, England. So there you go, apropos of nothing. The tradition of travelling around the country, plying a trade, did not die with the arrival of purpose-built theatres. Companies still got together to organise a tour, because that meant you could go to glorious places like, you know, Leicester. In fact, the relative decline of the local urban play cycles probably made touring even more widespread than they had been before. There were regular popular destinations, though, Northampton, Coventry, Worcester, Gloucester, Shrewsbury, Bristol and Exeter being the most popular, but they'd visit smaller towns on the way. Rather than the whole company going out on tour, they'd arrange collaborations with other companies and locals and form a sort of temporary group to avoid, if possible, reducing the schedule in London and losing money. Sometimes, though, they did go horribly wrong. One particular one organised by Richard Burbage flopped so badly that they had to sell all their kit, including all the costumes and props, leaving them with only what they stood in to get them home. One very good reason for going on tour was sometimes to escape plague, to which London was, of course, rather prone. In particular, the winter of 1591-2 saw a particularly bad plague, and all the theatres in London were closed, something of a financial disaster. It took until 1594 for them to reopen. So in the meantime, travelling was the only option to keep the money coming in since Elizabeth, astoundingly, decided not to put forward a scheme to pay people to go on furlough. Something like 11,000 people died in London alone, and the same would reoccur in 1603. Now obviously these plagues didn't stick within London, they spread outward, so you had to be careful about your itinerary, keeping the surfboard of drama just ahead of the crest of the wave, if that's what surfers do. But touring remained very important after the plague ended anyway. The Queen's progresses also were always accompanied by pageantry and plays, and patrons rather liked companies touring under their name. It did their reputation and prestige in the provinces no harm at all. Commercial theatre, then, was apparently here to stay and the capacity of public theatres grew steadily. By 1580, the total capacity of theatres in London on a summer's day was around 5,000. After 1610, this had doubled to 10,000. By 1595, it was estimated that 15,000 people every week were going to see the Lord Admiral's men and the Lord Chamberlain's men alone. And the quantity of plays 
the quantity was remarkable. We think of having runs of plays these days for extended periods depending on popularity. In those days, there was none of that. Old and new plays rotated in performance six days of the week, with each company offering a dozen or up to two dozen plays in a season or three different plays a year. The activity was increasing as we go through Elizabethan into Jacobean theatre. Up to 1589, about 90 new plays were published. Between 1590 and 1603, it was close to 400 plays. This meant that the pressure on playwrights was enormous. Playwrights like Thomas Webster were absolutely shelling them out. And there was a lot of collaboration between playwrights. Writing was often a joint effort. The demand for them was insatiable. Different theatres and companies probably offered very similar cycles early on, but as time went by, actors and companies might specialise a little bit. We'll talk more about playwrights in a minute, but the greatest actors would probably also have an influence on direction, particularly one of the greatest of them all, Richard Burbage. His father, James, of course, had built the theatre, and Richard went straight in as an actor at the age of 13. His brothers, a tough crowd, obviously the toughest, described him as brilliant. He became the most popular actor of his age and continued acting for various companies, but famously for the Lord Chamberlain's men with Shakespeare. He never retired. Actors never retire, they just meet Yorick, but continued to act until his death in 1619. Edward Allen, on the other hand, another of the most recognisable actors of the Elizabethan stage, had a much shorter career. He was the son of a publican and his stepfather was then a haberdasher. He was certainly on the stage by 1583 when he was 17, but he retired at the height of his fame in 1598. And then he went into business with Philip Henslow, so staying in theatre, and I believe is the man that founded Dulwich College, still a school today. So leading actors possibly patrons, but mainly theatre owners, had an impact on where they focused as far as plays were concerned. Henslow's preference was for historical epics like Tamburlaine. Burbage preferred the tales of English kings, but there was a lot of overlap. It's thought, though, that Henslow's preferences began to change with the Lord Admiral as patron, more towards plays that emphasised English Protestant values. Actually, I read from the good professor that wrote about this that they were even more specific than that. London values. But I didn't find out what those might be. Answers? Probably not on a postcard, to be honest. Lord knows what you'd all say. Ready to pop the question? The jewellers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Now then, let us change the focus just a little bit, and let me introduce you to George Edward Bateman Saintsbury. George was a child of Southampton, though he died in 1933 in Bath. He was a renowned and much-loved literary journalist and a prof at Edinburgh University. 
According to the ODNB, it was George who coined the title of University Wits for a group of 16th century playwrights and writers that includes the likes of Kit Marlowe. Today we're going to talk a bit about some of those characters and some others. The term doesn't include either Shakespeare or Johnson, as it happens. We're going to talk about the sort of society they made and the theatre that they helped to make shine. University wits reflects one of the reasons I mentioned in the last episode for this extraordinary rash of playwrights at the time. The downward spread of education through the extension of drama schools. Going to school became a much more standard aspiration for the middling sort of family. So when Hugh Latimer was being interrogated by Mary's inquisitors prior to being um, burned, he described his father as a yeoman with enough of a farm to produce an income of three or four pounds a year. And that's not a vast amount of money. But Latimer's dad made sure that he sent his son to school nonetheless. Even for his limited means, it was a priority and the way to a better life for his lad. For many, this was enough. But for many, they also went up to university, whether or not they finished with a degree, which in those days was by no means obligatory or normal. For many of the university wits, the theatre in London offered absolutely amazing freedom and liberation from the restrictions of rural and small-town society. Now, the parish community could be very supportive, but it was without doubt restrictive and dominated by the well-heeled. In London, they could, within reason, dress and behave as they pleased. And let me tell you that some of them are really well, not well-behaved. They knew each other, they worked together, collaborated, sometimes dramatically fell out with each other. So it's entirely probable that some or all of them could have been found drinking, yelling and laughing together at various alehouses, or more likely, taverns. They have been described as the Roaring Boys, which is coincidentally the title of a very good book by Judith Cook on which I have lent heavily. It's important to note that the phrase Roaring Boys or Roarers was very much a contemporary phrase not one invented later, or specifically for our characters, and in fact, quite by chance, I think I have introduced you to the concept in a previous episode. Roarers, I suspect, were the hooray henrys of the day, posh, loud, obnoxious, occasionally violent. Major differences being that the university wits, on the one hand, lived in a more violent society and had, you know, rapiers at their sides, and on the other hand, they were not brainless products of overprivilege. There were six who carried the title of University Wits. Three of them, John Lyley, Thomas Lodge and George Peel, were graduates of Oxford University, whereas Robert Green, Christopher Marlowe and Thomas Nash had been to Cambridge. That leaves out one of the more famous of this first wave of dramatists and pamphlet writers, Thomas Kidd, since like Shakespeare he hadn't been to university. As a result, Robert Greene and Thomas Nash sometimes made snide, nasty jokes at kids' expense. And Greene would do the same to Shakespeare, actually, being generally assumed to be the author of that famous quote, describing Shakespeare as the upstart crow, beautified with our feathers. All of these men, though, and I'm afraid most of what follows will continue to be all about men, whatever background, were largely forced to make a living on their wits and by their writing or acting. Going back to Saintsbury just for a moment, George gave them a number of unifying attributes in a rather more literary way than me calling them hoorays. They were all of academic education and had even a decided contempt 
despite their bohemian way of life, for unscholarly innovators. They manifested, except in Marlowe's fortuitous and purely genial discovery of the secret of blank verse, a certain contempt for form, and never, at least in drama, succeeded in mastering it. But being all, more or less, men of genius, and having the keenest sense of poetry, they supplied the dry bones of the preceding dramatic model with blood and breath, with vigour and variety, which not merely informed, but transformed it. So far bit from me to argue against George, because he, unlike me, knew what he was talking about. It is worth noting that academics might not argue with this, but point out all the contributions that were made by other contemporary writers and that this bunch didn't think of themselves as a coherent group, much as they would have known and maybe frequently met each other. So, John Lyley has a claim to be the most senior of them all, but can hardly be described as a roarer, actually, since he was known for his courtesy and good behaviour. But his work, Euphys, The Anatomy of a Wit, a compendium of witty anecdotes and humanist wisdom from the ancients, was published in 1578 and made him the most fashionable writer in England for a while. He became a member of the Earl of Oxford's household, created plays for the Black Friars Theatre and Boys' Companies, among other things. By 1600, though, he had largely fallen out of favour, seen as a product of an earlier age rather than the latest thing, and he died in 1606. George Peel acquired a reputation as a wild bohemian, but was recognised as a playwright and poet to boot. Thomas Decker would place him in his, his Elysium of Poets. In 1607, a book painted George as a character that wasted his talents in sexual adventure, a prodigal trickster who spent his life in taverns, which all sounds rather wild, young, bohemian and fun, but we're apparently not sure whether it's true or not. And that then brings me to Robert Greene, who burns a highly contentious and disputed comet trail across the night sky of Elizabethan drama, full of dodgy reputation and questionable personal history. But he's a sort of template for the royster-doister life that we like to imagine for all these writers and creatives. A man described as the first professional writer in England, which is itself as dodgy a claim as Greene's personal history. Incidentally, while we're on it, I first came across the name Royster Deister in Blackadder II when the foolish Percy greeted Bob, obviously to everybody else, a woman dressed as a boy. Hello there, Bob, you young Royster Deister, you. You look like a likely sort of lad for tricks and sports and jolly rosy-cheeked capering. Which was funny in its buffoonery. Well, who'd have thunk it? Apparently, Ralph Royster Deister was a play from a schoolmaster called Nicholas Udall in 1552. Good golly, the things you learn doing podcasts. Anyway, life didn't start out wild for Green. He was brought up in a fine city, a Norwich lad, born to parents probably with a few bob, but not posh, maybe cordwainers. He described his parents as respected for their gravity and honest life, which is nice, but not to be the trajectory for their son, who pretty early obviously decided he was going to cut a dash instead. He did the double degree, a BA at Cambridge, MA at Oxford. Then he claims to have set off to see the world. Italy, Denmark, Poland and, rather enterprisingly, Spain. He reported later that he saw and practised such villainy as is abominable to mention, 
which does not, it has to be said, sound as though he was being very apologetic. It was quite long on pushing the boat out was green, quite short on shame. It suggested that he married and then dumped his wife. Certainly he is credited with writing a sort of penitential to his wife from his deathbed. Or maybe it was forged. Who knows? A man of mystery. From travel to London, independence and more adventure. Over the next 12 years, he published some 25 prose titles, ranging from courtly romance, so-called love pamphlets, popular tales and crime exposés. England loved crime pamphlets and the arcane language of the underworld almost as much as it now loves true crime podcasts. It gave the respectable a lovely frisson. They called them coney-catching pamphlets or cousinage, fooling the unwary by the criminals, all about the names, languages, tricks and villainers of the criminal classes. He also wrote some half-dozen stage plays, including black comedies about wives murdering their husbands, the sort of, you know, flighty, not Norwich sort of stuff. Green took up with a woman called Emma Ball for a while, probably a prostitute, one of the Winchester geese, described by one Gabriel Harvey as a sorry, ragged queen of whom Green had his base son, Infortunatus Green. We don't know much about Emma, but she was not well treated. Of that we are pretty sure. She was the sister of a man called Cutting Ball Jack, a petty criminal who cut purses and threatened to cut parts of the male anatomy if not given cash, and who ended his life on Tyburn Tree. Despite Emma's pleading, Green refused to even recognise his son and pretty soon dumped both of them, refusing to recognise him, even on his deathbed. As I say, short on shame. Green was also a shameless self-publicist and one of the first celebrity authors. His name plastered on bills and posters and pamphlets all over London, publicising his work. Who in London hath not heard of his dissolute and licentious living his fond disguising of a master of art with ruffinly hair, unseemly apparel and more unseemly company, his fine cousining of jugglers and finer juggling with cousiners, his impudent pamphleting, fantastical interluding and desperate libelling, wrote a contemporary. Green created a career on the back of his self-made reputation and he fed that reputation for all he was worth though he liked to wear a doublet in delicate goose turd, a virulent yellowy-green sort of colour. He greased his red hair into a cone shape behind his head, while his beard, according to Thomas Nash, is long and red like a steeple, which he cherished continually without cutting, whereat he might hang a jewel. It is so sharp and pendant. Green lived on his wits and lived wildly. He sort of implied that his parents had cut him off, and he paid his way by writing and self-publication. He didn't actually make much money. He died of a thoroughly Elizabethan fever in a small garret somewhere. But he did, without doubt, cut a dash. What I'm trying to do here is sort of build a picture of the variety and excitement of it all. Obviously can't do a biopic of everybody. There's such a range of personalities, and I suppose Christopher Marlowe and William Shakespeare epitomise the range. Obviously, their stories are well known, so I won't go into any depth. But look, at one end, you've got Kit Marlowe, university educated, who lived a short, dangerous life of brilliant creativity in poetry and plays and extreme violence, 
probably involved in espionage with the super-famous Francis Walshingham, who died a violent death in 1594. And into this life he pulled another dramatist, very famous at the time, Thomas Kidd, the son of a London scrivener, not one of the university wits since he never went to one. His play, The Spanish Tragedy, was one of the most popular of the time. According to those that know these things, he was one of the greatest innovators in English theatre and may have been the first to use the play-within-a-play device. But Kidd was dragged into Bridewell House of Correction when Marlowe was arrested and being questioned about his supposed atheism, blasphemy and treason because Kidd had shared lodgings with Marlowe when Marlowe was writing Edward II. Kidd finally got himself out of Bridewell in 1593 and died the following year, 835. An awful lot of these folks died terribly young. London was not a healthy place to live. The horrendous death rate is rather underlined when you realise that its extraordinary population growth wasn't organic, but was entirely dependent on inward immigration from around the country, without which it would have been the size of, I don't know, Filey. I exaggerate for effect. Hmm, possibly. And then to William Shakespeare, who needs no introduction, of course, frequently described as the greatest writer in the English language, from a middling family, glovemakers in Stratford, and whose personal life and ambition was very different to Kit Marlowe. Cautious and hard-working, carefully investing the money he'd made in property, both in London and in Stratford, given to romantic attachments and politically keeping his head down. Actor, poet and playwright, of course, whose friend Ben Johnson described as not of an age, but for all time, and the soul of the age, the applause, delight and wonder of our stage. Though Johnson also, it must be said, remarked once that Shakespeare lacked art, but then he was getting rat-assed in Scotland at the time in front of the slightly horrified and scandalised Scottish poet William Drummond, on whose house Johnson had rather dumped himself. And when it was all done, Shakespeare went home, died back in Stratford at the age of 52, although according to legend he did at least die after a merry meeting with Drayton and Ben Johnson up from London. So, as I say, I simply cannot go through them all, but at this point it's also worth saying that although all of this so far has been about the Elizabethan world, the story is every bit as much about Jacobean theatre as it is Elizabethan. Shakespeare, of course, bridged the reign, and a new wave of playwrights follows on, many of whom take us into the reign of Charles I. Of these, Ben Jonson looms the largest, having tortured the school life as a substantial number of schoolchildren, though obviously not as many as Shakespeare, what with his Volpone and The Alchemist. But there is a load of others. Thomas Decker, Thomas Hayward, John Webster, whose Duchess of Malfi even I had heard of, Thomas Middleton. In this world they inhabited, it's also not just about playwriting, acting or even the business of theatre. As I've tried to describe, many made their living by a wide range of writing and there were great architects knocking about in their society, Inigo Jones outstandingly of course, and poets, again, some of whom I've actually heard of and know a few lines. I'll make that one I've heard of, John Donne, the bloke who wrote, Come live with me and be my love, and we will some new pleasures prove of golden sands and crystal brooks with silken lines and silver hooks. Which is pretty, you've got to admit. And 
No man is an island entire of itself. Every man is a piece of the continent, a part of the main. The world they lived in, whether they were head-down, hard-working souls like Lyley and Shakespeare, or wild childs like Green and Johnson, must have been extraordinarily exciting. Most of them were very young. The world they played in was definitively not normative, to use that word that's on my mind at the moment. It's quite a common whiff of Catholicism, which might be thoroughly normative in, say, Portugal, but was not in Jacobean England. Quite a few were gay. There were accusations with folks like Marlowe, accused of blasphemy. Alchemists like Simon Foreman were wafting around. And in the background was the continuous howl of concern from authority and religious types about the impact that they might be having on society. As one example, the London Common Council fulminated against the inordinate haunting of great multitudes of people to plays, interludes and shows. For another, John Stockwood thundered from the pulpit of St Paul's Cross against the gain that is reaped of eight ordinary places in the city. The London theatres, it was claimed, created disorder by bringing together and mixing up the vulgar, the criminal, with others out of their proper place, taking servants and apprentices from their work, parishioners from their worship, wives from domestic privacy, gentry from rural duties to idle recreation of the big smoke, and the money from the purses of all, by practising on stage nothing more than the vices of pretense and dissimulation. As we'll come to, it was not just about fun and games. It conformed to that platitude which we're continuously showered with at school, work hard and play hard, and I hate myself for using the phrase, but for playwrights it was absolutely true. There was the sheer quantity of plays produced which we just talked about and most produced pamphlets as well to make a living or even held down jobs such as scrivening or acted as well as writing but there's also the excitement i think i might quote verbatim judith cook here which i don't normally do but she does imagine the excitement rather well so let me give you her words rather than mine but for all of them the theatrical world had provided more than they could have imagined as schoolboys from being just another anonymous boy growing up in the city or the son of an artisan craftsman in a small town or rural village, known only to immediate friends and neighbours. They were caught up in the excitement of creative activity, working with actors on a drama, and finally seeing their work in production, able to stand inside and watch the reaction of a live audience to their latest play. It must have been heady stuff. Not to mention strolling into the nearest tavern or ordinary afterwards to accept the praise or criticism of those who'd spent the afternoon in the playhouse while looking across at the young women whose eyes were full of promise. We'll come to the hard work in a moment, but for the moment let's stick on the play-hard angle with Thomas Decker. We don't know much about Thomas, but he was brought up in London, possibly of Dutch heritage, and it seems likely he went to grammar school, but that's about it. He appears first as a writer for the Admiral's Men in Henslow's Theatre in 1598. He wrote about 40 plays for Henslow alone, often in collaboration with others, and worked right through the Jacobean years. Not much of what he wrote actually survives, though I had come across The Roaring Girl, a city comedy that incorporates the real-life contemporary figure Mole Cutpurse, which was a collaboration with Middleton. 
He was also a prolific pamphleteer, still writing when he was incarcerated for debt in 1612 for seven long years. The reason not much of what he's written survives may possibly, perhaps, maybe have something to do with Ben Johnson's judgment on him. Johnson thought Decker was little more than a hack and a dresser of plays around town. The two of them got into a major literary spat called the War of the Theatres in 1600 and 1601 when the two of them viciously lampooned each other in a series of plays. I tell you, it's a circus. Right. We will leave it there for the moment, but keep Ben Johnson in mind because we have to talk about the great Ben, one of the other giants of the Renaissance stage. And also because that'll give you as a chance to talk about the social lives of these roaring boys in London and the fraternity and the fraternity of the Cyrenical gentlemen. Until then, everyone, thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for your comments and all the rest of it. Good luck and have a great week. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince? They exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 